This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Good morning. I invite you to be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the book of Daniel in the sixth chapter is where we will begin to look at our study this morning in Daniel chapter 6. We are appreciative of those who are with us this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. We're especially grateful that you have come our way, that you've chosen to worship God and to be with us this Lord's Day. Sometimes... I think if we are honest with ourselves, we don't know how to pray. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 26, there in that context of Scripture, he says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. You think about the disciples of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 11, In Luke, the 11th chapter, they come to Jesus and they ask him to teach them how to pray. There's always the need for instruction on how to pray. One of the best ways to learn any kind of new hobby or new activity is to follow an example. I think we understand that fairly well. If you... Now, if you don't know how to do something, all you have to do is go to YouTube, and you can YouTube how to cook a meal, how to change the oil in your car, or do plumbing work in your home. You can figure out a lot of new hobbies that you could pick up just by watching someone else do that. The Bible is filled with examples of faith of men and women who demonstrate their faith in God and their obedience to Him. And one such example of faithfulness to God is Daniel. And he is exemplary in his life and his diligence of prayer. And as we have made it our resolve here at Westside this year to look at how we should rejoice always and pray without ceasing, I think it's important for us to look at an example that we can look to and and model ourselves after in learning to pray as we should. And so let's consider Daniel in three ways that we can learn to pray like Daniel. The first of those three ways is that we want to see what Daniel does is that he prays repeatedly. If we're going to be successful in our prayer life, then we need to be like Daniel and we need to pray repeatedly. In Daniel chapter 6 and in verse 4, at the beginning of this chapter, Daniel, he is a servant of the king of Darius and he is 
someone who's very prominent, and others are jealous of him. And the other commissioners and the satraps of the kingdom, they are jealous of Daniel, and so they begin to form a coalition against him. The Medo-Persian leaders, they wanted to oust Daniel from power. If you notice in verse 4, it says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Wouldn't you like that to be said about our politicians today? (laughs) That Daniel is faithful in everything that he does. No corruption. They could find nothing that he had done that was wrong. And so they continue on in their scheme. It says in verse 5, Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. What a testimony of Daniel right there, isn't it? That the only place they were going to find anything against Daniel that they could even use or weaponize against him was in his faithfulness to God. If people wanted to find something against you, is that the only place that they could turn? Is your service to God? Or would they be able to say other things about you? Daniel, he was someone who was capable of only finding his faithfulness to God, and so they were going to use that against him. It says in verse 6, And these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius lived forever, and they began to flatter the king, and they suggest to him that he should make a law where no one would be able to pray to God or any other man other than the king for 30 days, or else they would be thrown into the lion's den. They, need, they just needed a short window and period of time, didn't they? Where they could entrap Daniel in that. And the king, it says in verse 9, signed the document, and that was the injunction that he allowed to, and wrote into law. And Medo-Persian law, after a law was written, it could not be changed. And so, in verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Not only does he go in three times a day after he knew that this law had been signed, this is, had been his habit all along. This is what he had been doing the entire time. Daniel, knowing that this was going to ruffle some feathers and cause some trouble potentially for him, he chose to obey God rather than men. He had grit and determination knowing that he was breaking the king's law to be faithful to his God. He was doing the absolute right thing here. 
And you just see this resolve of Daniel to continue to pray to God even whenever it was going to cost him. And as we know, the rest of this story in chapter 6 is thrown into the lion's den and he's protected by God in that. Because he was doing what was right. But have you ever just stopped to think, why did Daniel feel the need? Why was he compelled so to pray so often, to pray three times a day, to make this a habit? Wouldn't it have been just easier for him to just say, okay, if I pray for these 30 days, then I'm going to be thrown into the lion's den. My life is going to be lost. Wouldn't it just... Wouldn't, I just, wouldn't it be smarter of me to just not pray for 30 days and then I'm good? And then I can continue on as has been my habit. Daniel wasn't going to compromise because he knew the God in which he was serving and to whom he was faithful. And in Daniel chapter 9, I think we get a glimpse of Daniel's prayers. And we will be turning to Daniel 9 a little bit more later and we'll be looking at some details there in just a few moments. But in Daniel chapter 9, I just want you to be impressed with, I think, what Daniel was impressed with about God. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel sees God's greatness and he appreciates God in that way. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 4, it says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. One of the things that drove and compelled Daniel to pray was the recognition of God's greatness and His awesomeness. That how... God creates and inspires awe and amazement in our life. That is why Daniel wanted to pray, and that's why he prayed so often. And he prayed regularly because of God's power and how uh, amazing our God is. And we understand that on, on certain things, don't we? You know, this is kind of my the dead time of year for me because there's this is the Kristen's favorite time there's no Razorback baseball or football or basketball there's no Chiefs football there's nothing to me this is miserable like come on let's come on September let's get here and yet those are things I get excited for and I get excited about it, and I want to talk about it. Whenever, that, whenever those sports are in action, I want to talk about it, and they inspire interest in me, and we could talk about it for a long time. When we have that kind of interest in God, that, the same kind of interest that Daniel did, then we are going to want to go to God and pray and visit with Him and talk to Him and communicate Him regularly and repeatedly. Once a day is not going to be enough. Just once every blue moon is not going to be enough. We need to have the kind of inspiration that Daniel did to recognize God's greatness and awesomeness 
and that He is the one who is faithful. God is ultimately the one who is faithful, and He is the one who dispenses blessing to those who love Him. In Daniel 9 and verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But to us, open shame as it is this day. And he sees God and His righteousness and His greatness and His compassion. He goes on in verse 9, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. You see this tension between what Daniel is saying and what God is. That Daniel is recognizing they have sinned and yet God is full of compassion. He's full of grace. He's full of mercy. He's full of love and forgiveness. That is why we need to be the kind of people who pray to God. Because we need to recognize our weaknesses, our shortcomings. And we need to go to God. Because He is the source of strength and comfort. Beginning in Daniel 9 and verse 10, he says, Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings which He set before us through His servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against Him. What Daniel picks up on is that God is one who has revealed His will to us. And He has made promises to us. God is a God who fulfills His word and His promises. Daniel is not praying out of desperation here. Don't you see that? He's praying out of a resolve because of who God is. And if we only pray at times of desperation or times when things are just only really, really bad, and I think God wants us to pray in those times. If those are the only times that we can find ourselves to pray, then I think He would rather have that. But we need to be people who learn to pray habitually and regularly, repeatedly going to God in prayer and spending time with Him, amazed at His greatness and His righteousness and His teachings, His compassion and His forgiveness. Those are the things that Daniel latched onto and that he was able to see. And Daniel understood that there was no king of the earth to whom he could turn in order to find that kind of greatness or mercy or compassion. Those things were only found in Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. That is what drove Daniel to pray. And that's why in the face of a death penalty, Daniel still opened his window and knelt down and prayed three times a day. We want to pray like Daniel. We need to pray repeatedly. But then we also need to pray repentantly. In Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 9, as we already made mention of, you see in verse 5, 
He says, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Do you notice the pronouns there? Daniel doesn't say it was Israel. Or he doesn't say it was them. Like, all those bad kings that we had, that it was them who messed it up. He says it was we, including himself there. We sinned. Now you read through the book of Daniel, you don't find of any sin that he commits. You don't find of any weakness in in his life and in his character. Now, I don't think that means that he was sinless, but we don't have any kind of record of his sinning. But here he says, we have sinned. You see the sense of community right here. You see intercessory prayer at work where Daniel goes to God in prayer on behalf of others, and he is recognizing his own weakness, his own sin. He says, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly, and we are the ones who have rebelled against you. He includes himself in the collective group and body of Israel. Even though, yes, God judges us individually for our sins, we need to be like Daniel, and we need to recognize the influence that happens from other people. That we are all influenced. None of us live in a vacuum, but we are all affected by other people's choices. People within the Lord's church, people with whom we work with, people who are our neighbors, the communities that we live in. We are byproducts of those people and those environments that we put ourselves in. And Israel had unfortunately been affected by the other nations around them. So much so that what Daniel says in verse 6, Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. You think about what... Daniel is saying there in the implications of it. While we might live in a very individualistic society where we are only concerned about me, myself, and I, and maybe my family, but we're usually first and foremost concerned about me and my well-being, and then we'll, if we have room, we, we'll think about others, won't we? Daniel's kind of throwing that on its head. He's including everyone here. And there are times where when we, in the face of sin, and it might not even be our own personal sin, it might be the sin of others, but we can just feel that it, their choices and their attitudes have affected us. We need to still 
pray repentantly. We need to be willing to repent if we have sinned. And we need to intercede on behalf of others who have sinned. We need to pray in that way that Daniel did. Thinking about an application of this principle, I think in terms of congregational discipline, you think about what happens is that whenever there is sin that comes into the body of Christ, it can just be one Christian or one family that goes off and drifts away, and then what happens, the rest of us are affected by that. We compromise, we are silenced, we're afraid to speak up, we're afraid to say anything. But notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians the 5th chapter, notice what the Apostle Paul writes about here. And he says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. There's a grotesque sexual immoral behavior that is going on and taking place among one of the families there at the church at Corinth. Something that wouldn't even be named among the Gentiles, Paul says. And he then goes on in verse 2 in a rebuke, not against that guy, but against the church. Don't you find that interesting? He says in verse 2, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Wait, Paul, I thought you should be getting on to that guy. He's the one who's making the wrong decisions. Yeah. But what you are doing as a congregation, as a people of God, as a collective group, you have not mourned his sin. You've accepted him with welcome arms. When he should have been removed from your midst, you're accepting him and welcoming him. Paul says in verse 3, For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's why you have congregational discipline right there. That's why you need to practice church discipline. When someone in our number is involved in sin, they, that this is so, excommunication is to help them understand that they are not serving God, they are with Satan. And so he says in verse 6, Your boasting is not good, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Now, each Christian is responsible for their actions and choices, but we collectively have a responsibility towards each other, don't we? 
whenever someone, any one of us may go off into sin, we have a responsibility to try to pull them back and bring them back. We all have that responsibility to try to encourage and nurture and bring them back to the Lord. But that responsibility goes even further that if they don't repent, we need to deliver them over to Satan so that they may be saved. And you might think, well, how does the church become like that? I mean, this is a pretty obvious sin. It's pretty blatant. It's a, it's a grotesque sort of sin. Well, Paul had been talking about how the church at Corinth was deeply divided. <clears throat> in chapter 1, in verse 10, he, he admonishes at the very beginning of this book that he wants them to agree and that there be no divisions among them. Whereas some are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am, I am of Cephas. Others are saying they are of Christ. <laughs> Paul is... Uh, he, he's trying to illustrate, I think, there that the church is so divided. If you continue on in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. I think what Paul is doing, he's, he's not naming names among the congregation. He's using Paul and Apollos and Cephas as examples there. He's not calling anyone out yet. But I think it's a pretty reasonable conclusion because in, by the time you get to chapter 5, here's a, a guy who has his father's wife. And the church is just, meh, okay. They're just ignoring it. Why would they do that? Perhaps, I can't say this definitively, but perhaps this is someone who's in the right family. Someone whose father might be influential. And so they're just not saying anything. Someone who had some power over the church. Was it the preacher? Was it the preacher's kids? Those, preacher, those PKs, they're, they're the worst ones, aren't they? Was it one of the elder's sons or daughters that was involved? And that was causing them to refuse to be disciplined? We don't know. It's conjecture. But it is time that we learn to repent and pray when there are sins that affect the congregation, when there are individuals among us who are involved in sin, we need to be trying to get them to pray. We need to pray that they would repent. We need to be like Daniel, and we need to be people who would offer intercession. And we need to also recognize our own weaknesses. Even when we go to someone in helping restore them and bring them back. Notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be 
tempted. That whenever we go to someone, we need to not be so arrogant and haughty as to think that we could never fall into the same kind of temptation. We need to be the people that would recognize, much like Daniel, that this could have been me. This might be me. So we need to pray with repentance in our hearts. Just as Daniel did. And then finally, we need to pray fervently and hopefully. Turning back to the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, I love this section as Daniel's prayer is coming to an end. In Daniel chapter 9, and beginning in verse 17, So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's prayer is infused with a sense of urgency. He prays expecting God to hear, doesn't he? He says some some things that I think many of us might even be a little afraid to say. Because they almost sound like he's making a demand of God, doesn't he? He says, God, listen! Because he expected God to hear. Daniel is, his fervor is is fueled by hopeful anticipation in returning to Jerusalem. I want you to notice in Daniel chapter 6, in Daniel chapter 6, in in Daniel's posture as he prays to God, in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10, as he comes into his, uh, in the roof chamber, he had his windows open toward Jerusalem. He is praying towards in the direction of the city of Jerusalem. And you see Jerusalem come up in his prayer there at the end. As he's talking about the city which is called by God's name. It's the city of Jerusalem. Remember that Daniel has been in Babylon. This is during the time in which the Babylonian captivity is taking place. It began with Nebuchadnezzar coming into Jerusalem, besieging it and taking it captive And in 606 B.C., he brought Daniel and his friends to Babylon. Captivity happened in stages, but in 
Daniel chapter 1, he begins to bring the royals, the royal families, the, the people of influence, the nobles of Israel, and he brings them first to Babylon. That took place in Daniel chapter 1, the first four verses you read about that, Nebuchadnezzar bringing uh, influential families and their sons, their children, the youths, into Babylonian captivity first. That took place at 606 B.C. You continue reading in the book of Daniel through chapter 5, and you get the handwriting on the wall, and Belshazzar and his feast, and he's that drunken feast. And that is the night that he was killed. And at the end of Daniel chapter 5 and in verse 31, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. When Belshazzar died, the king of Babylon, he, he was killed and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. That took place at 539 B.C. I think we can kind of forget how much time has elapsed in Daniel's life. He has literally spent most of his life in captivity. And it's in chapter 6 when Darius the Mede is ruling and he is the one who is the king and he is the one who makes the edict that you don't pray to anyone else. For 30 days, he is the king that is charged with throwing Daniel into the lion's den. Daniel 6 and the story of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, 67 years have passed with Daniel in Babylon. So between, the, between Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 5, you have Daniel being probably a, at least 77 years old. And that's probably on a, a pretty conservative end that if he was 10 years old when he was taken from Jerusalem and, and gone to Babylon, at, let's just say the age of 10, he spends 67 years in Babylon and then you have the change from the Medes to the Persians, and Darius is now king. You've got Daniel being about 77 years old. If I have a personal gripe, again, and it's nothing against Bible class teachers, it's just the, the artwork that we have. We need to make Daniel not look like a 10, 12, you know, 16-year-old boy being thrown into the lion's den. We need to make him look like an 80-year-old man being thrown into the lion's den. And what Daniel is doing, <clears throat> after spending 67 years in captivity, at the time of Daniel chapter 9, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Daniel, he says, I was reading Jeremiah the prophet. You go to Daniel or Jeremiah chapter 25, 
and you see the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he was pleading with the children of Israel to repent and, and to, to change, but that they were going into captivity. And he said it was going to be a 70-year captivity. You can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 25. I think that's what Daniel is reading there. He's reading Jeremiah. And he's saying, he's looking at, okay, he's kind of doing his math. He's like, I've been here for 67 years. Jeremiah, he said that this was only going to be a 70-year captivity. Three years and we're out of here. We're going home. He's looking forward to that. He's counting down that day. I think that's why he's praying towards Jerusalem. Because he knew that it was about to be time to go home. And if you go to the book of Ezra, Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, when they were leading the children of Israel back into Jerusalem and rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding Jerusalem. I can't prove it. There might be, a, there might be evidence that would support some, something else. But there is at least a Daniel that is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 2 and in, Nehemiah, in Ezra 8 and verse 2 and Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 6. There's a man named Daniel that is mentioned. I don't know if it's the same Daniel. I, I can't be definitive about that or certain about it. But what I can say is that it is certainly within the realm of possibility that Daniel went back to Jerusalem. He survived 67 years in Babylon. He lived that long. And we know that he did not die in the lion's den But why did Daniel pray with such fervor? Was because he was waiting to go back home. He was waiting for God to fulfill His promise to bring the children of Israel out of captivity. And if, even if Daniel did not get to go home, he made a better God made a better promise to Daniel at the end of the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13, the very last verse. He says, But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. God says you're going to rise again at the end of the age. But doesn't that make you begin to wonder that if God were to reveal to you the day that you would die or the day that Christ would return, would you start praying more? Would you start praying in anticipation of that day? Lord, forgive. Lord, Fulfill this, these promises that you have made. Probably so. And while we don't know the day nor the time of which Christ will return or when we will die, 
We need to be waiting and watching and praying. We sometimes will sing the hymn, Watch and Pray, for the Lord is coming, coming in the clouds someday. Wash your robes in the cleansing fountain. Watch, oh watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray, for we know not the hour when the Lord shall come. Watch and pray, and be ready to enter the soul's bright home. I would submit that if we are praying as we should, we're going to be looking forward to that day when Christ will return. We are going to be waiting, hopefully, watching with full anticipation, and that should increase the fervor and the urgency that is within our prayers. If we want to learn to pray like Daniel, we need to pray repeatedly because we recognize the power of God. We need to pray repentantly because of sin and the resolve to do better, learning from our past failures and even the failures and the mistakes and the sins of others. We need to try to bring others back to the Lord through intercession. And then we need to pray fervently, hopeful, and patiently waiting and watching for the fulfillment of God's glorious promise to be at home with Him for eternity. This morning, if you want heaven to be your eternal home, if you want to go and spend all of your eternal existence with the Lord. We want you to make your life right with the Lord. We encourage you to do that this morning. If we can help you in some way, whether it be being baptized and immersed in water, water is prepared and we're ready to help you. Or maybe it is that you've not been living faithfully and you need to make some changes in your life. Will you not make those things known? this morning as we stand and as we sing the song.